I've learned really from watching my own children, but through many 45 years of teaching students that you need to figure out what a student's interested in and you need to, to enable them. And you realize also, and this is something I learned from my training in psychoanalysis, sometimes you get a patient who comes in and you know how to, you know how to provoke an insight, but you don't know exactly what's going on. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And in this episode, we have an opportunity to dig a little further into the connections between art and creativity with our guest, Dr. Jonathan Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is the program director of the first PhD program in creativity at the University of Arts in Philadelphia. He's also the author of some 30 books and catalogues on modern art and the co-creator with Jonathan Carlin of Imagining America Icons of 20th Century American Art, which is an award-winning PBS television documentary. Dr. Feinberg is also a recipient of various awards, including the Pulsar Fellowship in Critical Writing. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for asking me. So, Jonathan, given your extensive art background, I think it gives us an opportunity to revisit the relationship between art and creativity. So I was wondering if you could first provide us with you know, your, your definition of creativity, and then tell us how that definition relates to the arts. Um, I suppose I'm a subscriber to that, uh, to the, the comment that Wittgenstein made, um, that you, that there's a lot of things you just can't put into words and that our, our ability is circumscribed by that, by that inability. And I, I've learned really from watching my own children, but through many 45 years of teaching students that you need to figure out what a student's interested in, uh, and you need to, to enable them. Um, and you realize also, and this is something I learned from my training in psychoanalysis, sometimes you get a patient who comes in and you know how to, you know how to provoke an insight, but you don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, and there is, there's a lot that we can't put into words. And works of art are very, are, it's a very powerful realm of discourse, which is not verbal. And oftentimes we're, we're able to communicate through images and through forms about things we can't actually talk about quite yet. And there's actually a chapter of my book on modern art, the border of mind and brain, which is dedicated to the relationship of Calder and Miro, who didn't have a common language, oddly enough. They both spoke very broken and terrible French, uh, but they communicated through their materials and compositions. And it was a fascinating thing to look at. So for teachers, that's, that's, I think, a great cue. So if you can't come up with words to describe what creativity is, how do you have a whole doctoral program in creativity? Well, I think it's, uh, it's about realizing, uh, again, that there are certain things you can do to stimulate a student uh, to break out of the hierarchies of thinking that they've been trained in, which is anybody who's done a PhD. Uh, I mean, I did my PhD at Harvard. It took me 10 years to get over that. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you're trained so thoroughly in, in methods and literature that precede you, 
um, that it's very hard to do something new. And on the whole, the academies and the fellowship committees and all the other formal things that exist are disposed to not letting you do that. So this program, the way this program works, um, I invented this after years of teaching PhD students. I realized that you needed to break down those hierarchies. And so this program takes somebody out of their job for two weeks, which everybody can do. And I throw them into one experience after another for which they have no tools, uh, push them to make sense out of it on their own, supported by a, a cohort of other students who are not only not in their own field, but are also very bright and are critiquing their work as they go along. So there's this kind of esprit de corps, all the usual things that interfere with the PhD uh, program, you know, the competition and all that other stuff. I just took it all out and I decided to really focus on the dissertation and on the creativity of uh, trying to solve a problem that, uh, that people haven't seen before. And First, first of all, I'm astounded by my students. They really are amazing people. Um, I've learned a lot from them. But, uh, but I think that we've gotten them all uh, to a successful point of, of doing more creative work in what they do. Just to, to follow up on something you said around critique, because, you know, I, I work in, in the Yukon School of Fine Arts and, and critique is such a, an important part of not just the art process, but I think, you know, any type of creative process. But you, but what you said that fascinated me was the fact that you have critique coming from people with backgrounds in other disciplines. And I'm curious to see how you've seen that play out because quite often we are encouraged to provide critique from a particular perspective, often shaped by the discipline to which we're studying. So it must be really fascinating to see this critique taking place under the umbrella of kind of like the arts, but everyone's from different different backgrounds. How does that play out? Well, you know, one of the issues I wanted to get, get away from was jargon, right? And every field has it. And if you have a, a group of fellow students, none of whom are in your field, you can't use it. Uh, the other thing I, I eliminated was uh, was the competition among students because in most graduate programs, all, you, you all end up uh, competing for the, for the same attention in the same jobs, and that's gone. And there's no exams, and there's none of that. So it's all about really trying to frame an idea based on experiences that you've had and to be able to communicate it to people who are really smart but not in your field. Um, and it's worked out incredibly well. And, and, um, and then, actually, once they're done with this immersion course, which is very intense, it's 14 days with no break, and it goes morning till night. Um, we're all exhausted. I'm getting too old for it, but they're all <laughs> we're, we're all exhausted at the end. And it's very productive, and part and the exhaustion is in a way part of the uh, process. And I bring in other people to help uh, with this process to really accelerate it. And then when I'm done with that, in the process of doing that, first of all, I, I keep asking this, the students to rewrite their dissertation proposals. And in lieu of, uh, of what they've just experienced. And so there's this constant rewriting and rethinking and group critique, which comes from an art school. That's why I'm doing it in an art school, even though none of my students are artists. So and when I'm done with that, what I try and do is I compose dissertation committees of three dissertation advisors. I pay them, which never happens and should happen in universities. And I also, they also agree to meet with the student once a month and critique the work and sometimes meet as a group with the student. I recruit people from all over the world. I try and get the people who I think will, will help this student the most 
in making a really creative um, and um, and make this the best thing that it can be. And so I've got students not only from all over the world, but I've got advisors from all over the world. And they're really extraordinary people have volunteered, people I didn't think would, would say yes when I called them. But, you know, we've got, I've got MacArthur Fellows and National Medal of Science winners and, you know, really amazing people signed on for this, uh, university presidents, uh, all kinds of people who have the expertise that really fits a student's project. And they've, and they've all... Uh, said to me at the end, we do a we do do a um, dissertation defense, but that dissertation defense has turned out to be just a very elevated conversation with these advisors and the students about the subject, not an interrogation. And every one of them has said to me, "This is the best committee they've ever been on in their academic careers, and they've loved the experience." So some of them are coming back to do it again. It's just, I think it's something we all need to think about in higher education. About you know. Um, what this might imply for how we do the PhD. I think it goes all the way back to preschool. I mean, the, the lessons that we can learn from uh, from enabling a student's intelligence and creativity. I don't know if you know that book by Jacques Rancière called The Ignorant Schoolmaster, but he talks about this as a French philosopher, the wonderful book, and he talks about that idea, you know, that you, you need to enable the viewer or enable the thinker, you know, enable the student to, to use their own brains um, and and to make that as sharp as it can be. And I just noticed it raising kids, you know, for my own kids. You know, I, I wish I'd been faster and better at this to begin with, but I realized that um, what you really want to do is understand where a kid's coming from and what they're, what they're interested in and how to, how to enable them to do what they want to do better. So you take this transdisciplinary approach to creativity and looking at people from all different disciplines – looking at research that they're interested in and you're housing this under creativity at the university of the arts, but not focused on the arts. Here's where I'm struggling. I'll just tell you, Jonathan, where I'm struggling is making that connection between um, creativity and the arts, helping at least give us some words to describe it because it's hard to say you can't describe it because you're researching it. So I think right now you're you're sort of really pushing me outside of my boundaries because I'm I'm trying to attach it to something and it's floating out there and I can't attach it to something. So as your perspective as an artist as well and having this huge history in the arts, how do you see that playing a role in the work with these doctoral students? All right. Well, first of all, I just did to you what I do to the students, which is to get you to make try and make sense out of something you don't have you don't have an explanation for. But let me answer your question directly. And that is you know, in the, in the last chapter of, of my um, Modern Art, the Border of Mind and Brain, I started to speculate on what happens in the brain when we're trying to solve a creative problem. And I realized that, you know, if you want to get great abs, you do a lot of sit-ups. And if you want to try and uh, be a creative thinker, you need to exercise the capacity to, to, um, to build the new connections in the brain um, for solving problems, and, per, and in particular, problems that can't be solved. So one of the things that interested me very much in that book were the late paintings of Dubuffet, where he where he made uh, these, um, they look like gestural paintings. They almost look like a Jackson Pollock drip painting. But when you look at them, you can't possibly resolve the spatial ambiguities in those paintings. They, they're unresolvable paintings. And Dubuffet was wonderful because he talked about what was going on in his head as he made these things. So we have a lot of, a lot to work with. But it's that issue of trying to get somebody to... Um, 
step out of the known, so to speak, to exercise the ability to put things together in a different way. And one of the things I I work with a, a group of postdocs at the medical school at, uh, at Penn in neuroscience, and and I'm I'm really interested in what happens um, in the brain. What what does creative problem solving really um, require? And and what the brain is extraordinarily complex. There's just billions of cells involved, um, and there are these networks that are called up. And when you look at something, if you think of something that's really simple, like the eye, for example, you know, when you and I look across the room. And, I'm looking at that cat behind you on your uh, on your shelf and thinking you and I are going to look at that and there's certain things we're going to see in common, which is kind of a miracle because uh, the eye has about a billion and a half cells on the retina, but the optic nerve has half that number of cells, which means that by the time what what you see gets into the brain where it's processed, there's already begun to be a transformation of information and recombination of experience. And it happens very fast and it happens in the brain. When you look at an fMRI of the brain looking at a visual problem, and I'm mostly interested in visual things, so that's why there's a lot to work with there, but it applies to other areas too. So if you look at the brain in an fMRI solving, trying to figure out something um, visual, what you realize is that it's not just the visual processing centers, which are in the back of the head, and we, we, we've mapped the brain pretty well, but actually the brain calls up everything. Well, there, you, you see the brain light up in little bits, you know, on the, on the parietal lobes and, you know, everywhere in the brain. And I think what's happening is that the brain is trying to solve a problem, trying to understand what it is in front of you. What, what is it you see? Probably less than 20% of what you see is coming from the eye, most of it's coming from cortical processing in which um, it's calling up memories of things you've seen before, putting them together, um, and then modifying them based on what you've just seen. And if you don't do that, and this is kind of an interesting thing, think about an animal in nature. If you encounter a predator and you have to start from scratch and figure out what it is, you're going to get eaten. So, you know, uh, you need to move fast. And so you're going to go to things that you've seen before, modify them, and try and put together a picture in your head. Um, and I think that's why all these parts of the brain light up. So I'm in the world of speculation here. I can't, I can't uh, go into, the, into a human brain and prove cell by cell that what I'm saying is true. But I, from everything I've seen, that, that's where I've, where I've arrived. To, to piggyback on that and go back to the question we spoke about, having an opportunity to showcase your ideas and, and speak about your dissertation work with people from so many different disciplines, it strikes me that the approach to critique, which coming back again, is, is something that is so applicable to the arts. I mean, you, you take classes in art appreciation, you learn to see things, you learn to try and reflect on how you're feeling, but then also what, how you feel that the artist was feeling, what they were trying to communicate, and then compare it to what you're receiving from that information, that having 10 people in the room with 10 different backgrounds allows for lots of diversity of thought, diversity, diversity of ideas. And I think it, it is only going to sharpen the individual, the, 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 the kind of PhD candidate's creativity, because they're now being challenged to make sure that the work that they're producing actually can be communicated to all these different disciplines. And it strikes me that actually the artistic approach that is being integrated into the program is the tool to which that is taking place. 
Well, you're you're right on. Absolutely right. I mean, that's why I'm doing this in art school. You know, nonlinear thinking is frowned upon in many PhD fields, but it's it's the center of the of the arts, and so is group critique. You know, if you look at a painting class, all the students get together. One person hangs up all their work, and they all talk about it. And you know, that, those are things that come from an art school, which are applicable to everything we do in a university, actually in all education. And, and I think that uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, that it sharpens everybody. It's really productive. Uh, the, everybody gets new ideas from doing that. It's, I found it really works. And then, of course, you bring in the iteration design by making them recreate their, dis- their dissertation or their problem statement in response to all of these different feedbacks that they've got. And I can only imagine how time-consuming and frustrating that must be but at the same time, again, I would argue that that is also a kind of experience that I would associate with with the arts and the artistic process as well. No, you're absolutely right. And I have to tell you that, you know, I, I don't think these students are finding it frustrating. I think they're finding it very exciting. So this process that you take them through, and I appreciate you pointing out that my my little shake there of going, I, I really don't understand what I can attach this to is part of the process, which I, I find fascinating and funny. So thank you. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, um, what happens throughout those two weeks? Do you give them any specific tools? What kind of provocations do you give them? And how could we do more of this in our leading up to this education? Like, what can we do beforehand? I think this is amazing in the PhD level, but are there, there are things that we can do And, you know, for our listeners who are K through 12 teachers or, you know, undergraduate students, what are things that we can help our students do to really let go of their points of contact that they can let go of these hierarchies of understanding to really make sense of the world in different ways? There are a couple of questions you just asked me. One of them is about about the program itself. And, And one of the things, just to give you a sense of what I did, for example, Right off the bat, I, I put the students um, into a, a morning class with a guy who's just an extraordinarily talented theater director in town who does a kind of improvisational improv theater in a way with them for the morning. Um, most of them have never experienced anything like that. It's very challenging because it really puts you out on the line. You know, he has them invent a character out of their own personality and then perform it in the afternoon. So, you know, that's pretty great. And then I try, and those things that are very physical like that, I try and intersperse them also with the seminars where we do readings that are challenging, and I give them readings um, that they've never seen before. One of the things I usually give them is a book about the brain itself. Um, I don't know if you know Antonio Damasio's work. I'm a great admirer of of his. He just did a new book called um, Knowing and Feeling, and he talks about what he thinks is going on uh, in the processes of the brain. Um, so we have that conversation. I'll also give them, you know, I, I don't know if you, do you know a book called um, Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit? That's a great book. She's a terrific writer. She's a sort of feminist writer uh, from California. Uh, she's very anti-hierarchical. And this book is about, has lots of different pieces that go together. And it's very hard to put it all together in a linear way. But it's very impressionistic. It's almost like reading poetry, which, in fact, I also have them do that. I give them readings that are challenging, that are not familiar. um, And we have these conversations about, you know, um, what happened? You know, what's going on here? And how do we, you know, what is that? How does that affect the way we know the world? The other part of your question had to do with, you know, what, what what does this say to a K through 12 teacher? 
I think the K through 12 teachers are probably more familiar with how to handle this than those of us who've been in universities for a long time, because kids ask completely unpredictable questions and you have to, and you have to honor the question with them. Um, and that is part of the process. Uh, so I think, um, but I want to encourage more of that. I think it's really important for teachers of young children to really uh, try and enable them rather than train them. Uh, you can train a kid to do anything, but you know, but if you can enable what they natively want to do, you'll teach them to be better thinkers. And so, one of the things is again to come back to yet another question of yours, which is about children's work. You know, if you look at the uh, everybody thinks Picasso was a genius because he could draw a perfectly rendered academic pigeon at the age of nine, but that's not what's great about Picasso. His father taught him to do that. And and you can teach any kid to do that perfectly. What was extraordinary in those very same drawings by Picasso is you flip them on the other side and you find him doing drawings that a kid would make. It's obviously by a nine-year-old, but what's so amazing is that you can already see that Picasso has the capacity to see multiple things at the same time in different ways which is the nature of cubism. It's the nature of his genius. What his training in in a way enabled him to do was to do anything he wanted so that he was able to do that better. So I would say for the K through 12 teachers, you know, keep it up, you know, keep, keep uh, being a sympathetic listener to, to help a kid get, solve the problems they want to solve, see what they're interested in and encourage them to do that. You know, you know, the famous remark somebody asked Terry Truman one time, he said, he said, um, you know, I never tell my daughter what to do. I ask her what she wants to do, and then I tell her to do that. <laughs> Which is right. That's the right approach. Going back to the very first question where I was asking you to talk a little bit about the relationship of creativity and the arts, and we, we, we spoke about some of the common practices that we see within the art world and how they might be applied to this PhD program. And I think also we can start thinking about how they might be applied to other areas as well. But you also said something else then that I was wondering, well, is this another kind of practice or, or dare I say skill set that's common in the arts that actually might be of benefit to creativity in other disciplines? And that's that idea of being able to see things, at least visually, in different ways. Is, is that something that, you know, with your background in art and art history, that you do see as something that's a very important aspect of the artistic process because it strikes me that in other disciplines, we're not always encouraged to see things in different ways. Yeah, that's absolutely at the core of the whole thing. You're absolutely right. You know, one of the things that works of art do for us, which is so, again, back to where we started this conversation, works of art uh, give you an experience which is very deeply felt if you're really involved in a, in a work. You know, you really feel it. Um, and you can't quite put it into, into words, And it's, in a way, a little bit, um, I like to say, you know, a great work of art is like falling in love, you know, because you, you trust somebody else to get into this, into a very private space with you, this place that you would never let anybody else into, because you trust them, and because of that, uh, that emotional investment in them, and because of the positivity of their response to you, it allows you to kind of reorganize yourself, to think about things in a different way. And I think, um, you know, it's not only true of a great marriage, but it's also true uh, of a great relationship with, a, with a, a painting. You know, you look at a painting, and if you really love that painting, you get involved with it, and it kind of, it, it touches you in a way that's, uh, that's deeply personal, very emotional, 
and it opens up your way of thinking about things uh, so that you're available for to give things new meanings. And that's critical. I think I think you hit it right on the head. I think that's absolutely uh, essential for all this. I have one more question about the doctoral program before we, we ask you our final question, which is, are you training people to be creative researchers or are you training people to look at research about creativity? No, the for, absolutely the former. I'm not trying to train anybody to be a researcher in creativity. Um, I'm trying to use what I have learned doing that as a, re- a researcher myself in creativity to enable them to become better at whatever it is they really want to do. So they define a project. They have to come to me with a project they want to solve. And, they, and usually it's because they have been working in a field for a while and they realize that there's something they want to do that their training isn't adequate for. Um, and they have to make it up themselves, which everybody, every good researcher comes to that point some, at some point or another. And I want to enable them. I want to help them uh, be better at that, quicker at it, and more creative and more uh, innovative. As, you know, as the president of the University of the Arts, when he came here, redefined the, the mission statement of the university down to a simple phrase, which was advancing human creativity. And this whole program is, in a way, an embodiment of that idea. I think that's really what we want to do. We finish up all of our episodes asking our guests to provide three tips that educators can go and either think about or implement in their classrooms. What would be your three tips? Well, one thing is to be a really open listener. So talking to students and listening to what they have to say and trying to understand where they're coming from and what what they need from you. Um, The second thing I would say is that that relationship of trust, the mentorship aspect of teaching is critical. It's why online education doesn't work quite as well. It's, you know, you get into a room with somebody, they, they, they get to know you, they feel comfortable, they trust you, and they will take a leap into something they don't even understand because you tell them to try it. And, you know, that, of course, is what every child learns from every parent. You know, I ask, uh, if I were to ask my grandson to do something, he doesn't have the basis to make a judgment about why I'm asking him to do it or why it would be valuable, but he'll do it because he trusts me. And in the process, he will learn why. So um, that's my second thing is, is that it's that mentorship in the relationship is terribly important. What would the third thing be? It's something about an open mind. Uh, can I tell you a story? Is that okay? I, I, had a, I used to teach at University of Illinois. It was a remarkable place, a wonderful. I love state schools. I, you know, I did it purposely. I, instead of, I could have spent the rest of my life at you know, Harvard and Yale, and I said I went to University of Illinois because I thought I could change people's lives, and I think I did. And there were, we had five Nobel Prize, Prizes on the faculty when I was there. Mostly they were in physics and related fields and sciences, but they were all people I knew very well. But there was one guy who I always think about, a guy named Carl Woese. I don't know if you remember his name. But Carl was trained in physics, and he shifted into genomic biology. And he said, we don't understand evolution. It's not like a tree. He said, it's like, you know, it's coming up in all places at once simultaneously. It's unpredictable. Nature never repeats itself. And he said, you know, um, and furthermore, there aren't just two forms of life. There are multiple forms of life. And the science community treated him like a pariah. They didn't take him seriously for years. He was sort of an outlier. And then all of a sudden, one year, he discovered um, the archaea, which is a third, another form of life on the ocean floor, 
which is neither plant nor animal. It was on the front page of the New York Times. He won the Crawford Prize, which is the Nobel for, for biology. By this time, he was a pissed-off 80-year-old because the science community hadn't treated him very well. But everybody now looks at him as the, probably the foremost evolutionist of the late 20th century. And I think about him a lot because, you know, we all, we all bring to the experience of encountering somebody else's ideas a whole set of prejudices that we often don't see. And we need to analyze ourselves in that process and ask, you know, ask ourselves to be more open to things we haven't thought of before and more receptive to points of view that aren't like ours. Um, we, we're seeing the, the downside of not doing that in our culture right now. Jonathan, thank you so much for this really interesting conversation. If you're interested in Jonathan's work, check out his website, which we will put a link to in the bio. And he's also offering his, one of his books, Art Since 1940, Strategies of Being, for free as a digital download right now. So we'll also put the link to that in the bio. So again, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. If you like this episode, go and share it with a friend. I think I will be sharing it with many of my friends and colleagues. And if you have any questions about past episodes or future or present episodes, please contact us at questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wood. This podcast was produced by Creativity and Education and in partnership with dadsforcreativity.com. Our editor is Sina Yousafzadeh.